Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1. We'll be reading from the NIV tonight. Well, we would use the LSB, Nathan, but we have a reference in Jeremiah, so we don't have that quite yet. Um, Just non-shade. I'm kidding. No, James chapter 1, we'll look at verses 5 through 12 uh, tonight, and before we read our passage, I want to just talk about last time when we met together here in Broad, we began our look at the epistle of James, the book that shows us a faith lived out, a faith lived out. And specifically in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we looked at what true faith looks like in the face of trials. Uh, how we ought to respond in the face of diversity. And so we put true faith on trial. We saw that those with true faith choose to respond to trials with a peculiar sort of response. And that's uh, one of joy. And the reason being that we saw in this passage that this kind of testing of our faith produces what verse 2 calls steadfastness, a sort of patience or perseverance or endurance. And this steadfastness in turn, verse 4 says, if you let it, if you let God work patiently, that steadfastness has its full effect. That is, it produces maturity in us. It sharpens and shapes our character. It produces a multiplied kind of kingdom usefulness in us in trials. And so seeing how this all works, uh, we are challenged in James to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. But what about... Not just if, but when we struggle. When we fail to count it all joy. When the pain or the sadness or the lack of clarity, it seems too much to bear. Uh, When the interpersonal conflict or the health issue or the domineering boss or the difficulty with your parents who can't seem to understand, seems impossible, seems unsolvable, seems insurmountable. Uh, When you're supposed to count it all joy, but your back's against the wall, where do you find help? Uh, When this promise of steadfastness and its maturing effect seems so far away, where do you turn? Uh, When you see and you trust, kind of, that God is growing you to where you are lacking in nothing, Uh, but you in this moment are clearly lacking right now, what do you do? Well, in our passage tonight, James acknowledges that in this life, as we grow and groan and grasp from one trial to the next and then to the next, We are not yet perfect and complete, as verse 4 says. We are not yet lacking in nothing. We lack wisdom and perspective. 
perspective and the trust that we ought to have. And so here in our passage tonight, James shows us help. He's calling in the cavalry, so to speak. James shows us that God, the very God who calls us to count it all joy, is the very same God who helps us to do so. He generously and graciously provides wisdom and perspective for those who are His own. Now, I wonder if you're the type of person or maybe you have a friend who will get so fixated on something they're doing that they miss something far more important that's happening right in front of them. Half of you guys just looked at the person next to you. You miss something because you're so fixated on what you're doing. If you would only look up. Uh, You're so fixated on texting your friend about where they are that you don't see them standing right in front of you. Uh, You're so busy taking a story, uh, showing everyone that you're at the game that you miss Johnny Juzang's big shot. Uh, You're so busy looking at the bent corner on your postcard of Arizona, you miss the moment the sun peeks out over the Grand Canyon. You're so fixated on what you're doing or what's happening right in front of you that you miss something far more important uh, happening over and ahead. If you would only look up. Well, that's exactly the picture in our passage tonight. James here says, look up. We are so fixated on our trials, our troubles, the, the turmoil and the tumult of life. And so by so the Holy Spirit, by the hand of James, the brother of Jesus, says to us tonight, look up, look to God and find perspective that drives you to joy. Let's look at our passage, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. We'll start in verse 2 for context. James 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the, lowly brother, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Father, illumine our minds, open our hearts to your word, that we might behold wondrous things, truths that drive us to joy in the face of trials. And so, God, we ask your help by the Spirit's power and in Jesus' name. Amen. The truth we see in James chapter 1 tonight is that from grace to glory, God gives us everything we need to seek joy in trials. From grace to glory, God gives us everything we need to seek joy in trials. In our text tonight, James, James shows us a thoroughly Godward outlook, one that gives us multiple angles of divine perspective, perspectives that help us understand a little more in our trials of what God might be seeing in our trials, perspectives that help us to understand that there is a view that is far above our human finite view. These are perspectives that get our hearts and our minds working, our convictions stirred, and our affections redirected where they should be. These are perspectives that are catalysts for joy in trials. So we'll see tonight three catalysts for joy in trials. The first is in verses 5 through 8, and that's the perspective of divine wisdom, the perspective of divine wisdom. James shows us here first that God freely gives the wisdom needed for us to find joy in trials. There is sometimes a huge disconnect between uh, the responsibility we have to count it all joy and the reality and the difficulty of life's trials. Uh, There's a difference, uh, a disconnect, a chasm sometimes, as it seems. Uh, As we have yet to grow in our maturity and stability and uh, perseverance, there will indeed be times when we knowingly lack the wisdom, uh, the understanding, or the perspective to count it all joy. And so James, here in verse 5, says, if you lack the wisdom to count it all joy in the trial that you're facing, ask God. Simply ask God for that wisdom. In that knot of a trial that you find yourself bound up in, look up and ask God for wisdom. A simple way to understand wisdom, and we'll see plenty of that, uh, the definition and the application of wisdom in the entire book of James. But uh, for now, a simple way to understand wisdom is to think of it this way, is knowledge applied. Uh, The knowledge about God and his ways of righteousness as found in his word, uh, but then applied to life, lived out. Uh, Wisdom, it's the ability to discern what's true and lasting and eternal, and then act on it. One commentator says it this way, knowledge 
understands the light has turned red, wisdom applies the brakes. Knowledge sees the quicksand, wisdom walks around it. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments, wisdom obeys them. Knowledge learns of God, wisdom loves Him. So it's this fitting application of truth in our lives that we so desperately need in our trials when we face turmoil in life. But look at verse 5 very closely. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. You're not just asking generally for wisdom or for counsel or for advice. When you ask for wisdom, you are asking the almighty God of the universe. And there's four aspects of this that I want to look at very quickly. First, when you ask God, when you ask God for wisdom, you are asking the all-wise God, the one who, Proverbs 3 says, by wisdom founded the earth. When you ask the all-wise God, you are asking that God for the, for the wisdom to go through life's trials. And it's the God, Romans 11 says, of, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his, are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Rhetorically, no one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has been his counselor. He is the all-wise God, and you are asking him for wisdom. Secondly, when you ask God for wisdom, you are asking the God who gives wisdom generously, freely. This word has the connotation of even the, even the idea of being simple. Simply, in his nature, he's giving as is his nature. Straightforwardly, sincerely, openly, God gives wisdom. He gives of his mind. Thirdly, when you ask for wisdom, you are asking the God who gives wisdom to all. To all who are his own. There, there is no spiritual elitism in this. All who ask God in faith will receive such wisdom. And then number four, when you ask for wisdom from God, you are asking the God who gives wisdom without reproach. You see, when you ask God, he doesn't find fault with you. He's not rolling his eyes as if you should have gotten this already. He doesn't, in your asking, judge you for asking. And so when you ask God for wisdom, you are asking a loving, all-wise, generous God who gives wisdom abundantly and freely and without reproach to all who are His. What a wonderful promise this is. That is why, though, James says, you must ask in faith with no doubting, verse 6 
says. You see, the God who gives and the God who gives generously to all, the God who gives without reproach, is a God worth trusting. He's a God worth approaching in full faith with no doubting. When faced with trials, true faith in its quest for joy looks up to God and in the exercise of true faith asks God for wisdom and understanding in full faith. James gives us two word pictures to understand what it looks like when someone fails to ask God in faith. They ask God for wisdom, but they doubt Him. First, in verse 6, we see James describes this person as a wave of the sea, uh, driven and tossed by the wind. This is a wave with no direction or pattern, uh, subject to every gust of wind around, uh, carried along by the power of whatever wind comes along. Aimless, directionless. Uh, whimsical, unsettled. Uh, The second picture in verse 7 is that of a double-minded man. This is someone who has no emotional or convictional compass. Uh, This person is wishy-washy when faced with uncertainty. Uh, Whatever the last thing this person heard or has thought of is what drives him. Uh, This is a compartmentalized sort of existence. Believing in God in concept, but not trusting Him when life actually gets tough. Pilgrim's Progress has a character, his name is Mr. Facing Both Ways. Someone who claims to love God, but doesn't show that love for God through trust and faith when life gets tough tough. And so James's indictment on this person is that he is unstable in all his ways. This kind of a person, James says, should not expect to receive anything from God, any wisdom from God, because there's no actual trust here. It's just a desperate attempt for answers. Uh, It's evidence there is no attempt to navigate this trial in any kind of faith, but instead a selfish effort to get out of it, Uh, using God as some sort of magical genie instead of trusting him as the sovereign, all-wise God. And so here James is saying, when you approach God, you must do so without doubting. You must ask for wisdom in faith because it's God you're asking. I wonder when the last time it is you were in the supermarket and you were trying to pick a melon of some kind. Watermelon is my choice. And there's a few things you can do to choose the right watermelon. Some people go for the... Some people have some way of reading the patterns on the outside of the watermelon or seeing the colors. Inevitably, if you stand around the watermelon container for long enough, somebody will come up to you. 
usually the worker. Do you need something? Oh, just trying to pick a watermelon. And of course, that 17-year-old kid has all of the tricks to find the right watermelon. All of the tricks. Now, if you get past that interaction and kind of brush him off kindly enough, you'll probably see somebody. Somebody who looks like they know what they're doing. Right? They always start the conversation with, hey, how are you? And they're reaching across you for a watermelon that you put down five minutes ago. And you end up choosing the watermelon that they recommend. And it is the best watermelon. Now that person always has that look. They look like what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And they know they look like that. They have that look in their eyes. When you approach God in your trials and you ask in faith, God doesn't just look like He knows what He's doing. It is in His very nature to generously give of His infinite wisdom to all who are His and without reservation or reproach. Just look up, Christian, and ask. He is the Almighty God who founded the universe in His wisdom. When you ask God for wisdom, you are asking the very God who brought you to Himself in His wise plan of salvation. When you ask God for wisdom, you are asking the very God who holds you firmly in His hand in wisdom. When you ask God, you are asking the very God who sovereignly ordains every moment of your life in His wisdom. And so God who calls you to consider it all joy in trials here vows to give you the wisdom you need to do so. If you would only humbly approach His throne in full faith and just ask. When you face trials, when you face rejection from others, or when the test doesn't go how you want it, or you face the health trial or the family emergency, are you fixated on your trial, focused only on what is happening right here and right now, or on how you're feeling? Are you worried or anxious as to how this will all Go down. Ask God for wisdom. Look up and see the all-wise and generous God. Jesus said in Matthew 7 a very similar thing. And I believe this is what James was thinking of as he wrote this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, catch this, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Christian, look up. Look to God and ask for wisdom and he will give it to you. Uh, What a precious promise we have in this first catalyst for joy. The second is in verses 9 through 11, and that's the perspective of the divine economy. The perspective of the divine economy. James shows us that a fresh reminder of God's economy, his value system, encourages us to look to him for joy instead of temporal things. You see, as we face a difficulty in the testing of our faith, we so readily find comfort and dissatisfaction, for that matter, in the material, in the earthly. We think that if only our present circumstances were different, If only we had more money or things. If only we had the resources to assuage the situation or to distract us enough from what's happening. If only we could put enough financial bubble wrap around the potentialities of life. We are so readily convinced that the value system of this world, the earthly economy, is the matrix by which we should interpret all of life. And so when trials come, it's our stuff and our status and our comforts that we tend to run to and trust. We think in some way the difficulties we face uh, that really are tests of our tests of our faith uh, can be resolved or softened or untangled by the power of riches or popularity or fame or gain. Uh, we would rather uh, vacation or video game our way out of our trials and then truly face them and trust God and proceed straight through the fray. That is the illusion and the allure of worldly riches that we see here. James flips on its head. And he shows us the perspective of God's economy. Instead, the value system established and defined by the gospel. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. James says something surprising here, admittedly. That the poor or lowly or undistinguished, should boast. And again in verse 10, inferred, while not said by word, that the rich or the wealthy should also 
boast. And most normally, we don't think of the Bible telling us that we should boast. But look here at what James is saying exactly. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich inferred boast in his humiliation. You see, God's economy, the divine economy, is a reversal of this world's economy of earthly values. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says it this way. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, God says. You see, in the gospel, the poor and lowly have reason to boast. Because in knowing God, we have spiritual riches. We are exalted by God in salvation. And so the materially poor can boast in their riches in Christ. Second Corinthians 6.10, Paul describes his sufferings this way. He says, we are as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And what would make the Apostle Paul say this? He says later in chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he, because Christ, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the value flipping of uh, the gospel, uh, that those who are low will be exalted. Uh, Turn to Philippians 3 and we'll see this. Philippians 3 Uh, Verses 7 through 9, Paul describes uh, his giving up of value for the surpassing value of knowing God. Paul says there in verse 7 of chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 11, and we see the continuing result of Paul's decision to give up worldly value and status and riches for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger or abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Go down to verse 19, and Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so this is the sort of gospel-driven boasting all over the New Testament, but especially in the Apostle Paul's letters. Romans 5 gives a similar concept. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and then we rejoice or exult in hope of the glory of God, our exaltation. Galatians 6, but far be it from me to boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The gospel defines our values as Christians. And we give up the status and the pursuit of riches for the riches found in Christ. Turn back to James. Look at what James says, though. He says the rich man is also to boast. But he is to boast in his humiliation. You see, like the poor man, the rich in light of the gospel, uh, have this joyous boast that in Christ there are far greater riches to behold. Something you cannot buy with all the riches in the world. Forgiveness of sins by the righteousness of Christ. And so like the Apostle Paul, the rich man surrenders all his worldly riches that he might find eternal riches in Christ. This is his humiliation, the complete loss of any entitlement to worldly riches because now in Jesus Christ there is no expectation or value to be found in any of his possessions. This is what Jesus asked of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who because he had great possessions, then went away sorrowful after Jesus said, sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. But this man could not give up his great worldly wealth. And in response to this interaction, listen to Jesus' indictment of worldly riches. How they distract and corrupt and stumble many from the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so here in James, James takes us to the logical ends of the path of the rich. Look again at the middle of verse 10 and verse 11. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The rich man in pursuit of worldly riches, James says, is like a flower. This is a reference to Isaiah 40. 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, quoted again in First Peter, as you know. And James gives us this very vivid picture of the ancient Near Eastern climate. Uh, the sun rises with its scorching heat. You think of Jonah at the end of the book of Jonah sitting under the scorching heat. And literally grass withers. The, this flower of a rich man fades away. An almost unexpected sort of turn of events. Uh, the beauty and shine of this rich man and his possessions fade away under the scorching heat. Even in the midst of his pursuits, this happens. Uh, something inevitable and very Ecclesiastes about this. A brutal end for those who pursue worldly richer, riches and do not boast in their humiliation. Now, to be clear, uh, this is not a full indictment of having stuff, uh, but a warning of the difficult and distracting and dangerous result of pursuing worldly riches instead of the riches we have in Christ. Perhaps more importantly here though, James's point is that both rich and poor can boast they both can boast because of the exaltation and humiliation that the cross of Jesus brings. At the foot of the cross, all people, rich and poor, will bend the knee before Christ, the Savior King, and all will stand forgiven. The poor and lowly and forsaken of this world are made rich and exalted, and the wealthy and the famous and the popular forsake their riches in their humiliation, and all to follow Jesus. And so Christian, as you face trials in this life, and you face the temptation to think that some measure of money or popularity or fame or success will right the wrongs in your life or make you happier again. Stop trying to pay off your trials with the monopoly money of this world system. Look up and think upon the divine economy. The reversal of this world's values found in the gospel this paradoxical understanding that to be spiritually rich is to be truly rich. I believe trials emphasize and expose who or what we truly and already trust. Trials test and refine and expose true faith for what it really is. And here we see that trials expose the very object of our trust. Christian, as one who has committed your life to Jesus, leaving all else to follow Him in the face of trial, 
trusts not in riches or fame, but trust in the Lord. The author of Hebrews wrote of Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Look up to God and live for that which is of infinite and eternal value. The third catalyst is that reward. The perspective of divine reward. The perspective of divine reward. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James here gives us a picture of the Christian's eternal reward and how it is a compass for joy in the midst of trials. James uses the beatitude formula so familiar to us. Uh, He borrows from his half-brother Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man. Happy or fortunate or privileged in God is the man. Blessed of God is the one who remains steadfast under trial. The one who faithfully counts it all joy when met with trials. Uh, The one who stays faithful and passes the test of trials. Here, that blessedness manifests itself in eternal reward. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for or because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This crown, this reward, isn't the kind of crown that might first come to mind. Golden and jeweled brim. This is instead the kind of crown given to the winners of athletic competitions. A laurel wreath made of olive branches. The kind given to Olympians. That's exactly the picture here. The victor's crown, the olive wreath is given to this steadfast, faithful runner who has endured each trial and tribulation to complete the long and difficult race of life. Uh, You see, true blessedness, true happiness, isn't found in escaping or getting rid of life's trials like we so often think. True Blessedness is found in enduring life's trials. And like Joseph, looking to the reward, seeing difficulty and opposition in light of eternity, finding full and final fruition in receiving the crown of life. The victor's reward of eternal life with God. And let's be clear, the blessed Christian does not receive the crown of life because he has been steadfast under trial, as if he has earned it in some way. 
Uh, the blessed Christian receives the crown of life because God has uh, promised it to those who love him. Verse 12 says, And God, by his great grace and mercy, has given us this eternal life, this crown of life, through his Son. Uh, but on that last day, we will receive that very crown, that crown of eternal life with him. And it's this great reality, this eternal reward about which James says, live in steadfast faithfulness through trials with this reward in view, with this in mind. Look up and see that beyond the fiery trial in front of you, this heavenly reward awaits those who love God. The game of life is a classic board game. You get in your plastic car and you traverse the adventure of life as a blue or pink person-shaped peg. The game of life is one of the most satisfying spinners to flick. It's awesome. You should try it sometime. Each space on the board has some sort of significance. If you land on an orange space, you must follow the rules. Sounds like some places I know. If you land on a blue space, it's optional to follow what it says on that space. Sounds like another place I know. If you land on a green space or go past one, it's payday. And if you land on a space that says you have to pay taxes, uh, you pay whoever has the accountant role for their career. Or if you get into a ski accident, you pay your other friend who has the doctor card. If you land on the space where you're fired, you get to choose a new career. Or if you have a midlife crisis, uh, then you find another new career as well, and you go to night school. Life, the game, is filled with surprises and sorrows of all kind. All of which, if you've played the game of life, are assigned a monetary value of some kind. Pay $50,000. Earn $100,000. Everything has a monetary value in the game of life. And of course, like uh, many games in this genre, you win at the end of the game if you have the most money. And you retire either at millionaire estates or countryside acres. And you do the math. And you win if you have the most the game of life is a game. But don't we sometimes live life, like real life, like this? Life is a series of choices on our way to the end that is retirement, hopefully at a young age. It's a calculated uh, hope as few things get in the way as possible sort of experience. 
And sometimes we think of wisdom just as the Christian how-to for having the best life possible. Really, the way that we live life, how similar it is to the game of life, is a sorry indictment on how fixated we are on ourselves and our achievements, our success and our stuff, and how much we trust in those things. It's an indictment on how we aren't ready for when trials will come, and they will come. Tonight, James chapter 1 has told us to look up, fold up the game board, and pack up the pieces into the little baggie. GOC, let's use the time God has given us in these college years, sort of adulthood light for most of us, when trials will come as a future reality. And for some of you where it already has come in the form of trial or sickness or family emergency. Let's use this time where God has us in his word about trials. To be prepared for trials. To prepare our perspectives. To humble our expectations. And tune our hearts to God's own heart in this. So that when trials come, when the storms of life do come, we'll know to look up to God, to ask for wisdom, to be reminded of our value in him, and to look to the reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, because in your word we find life. We find life and we find grace and we find instruction for us to follow. And the instruction tonight, Lord, is simply to go to you and to seek wisdom, Lord. And so that is what we do, Lord. That is what we commit to doing as a ministry and as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help in our hearts and in our lives for us to be on our knees in prayer, uh, asking humbly, Lord, for you uh, to change us and shape us and grow us and mold us more into the likeness of your Son uh, through every trial and storm of life. And so, Jesus, that is our prayer. We commit that truth to you now in song. It's in your name we pray. Amen.